Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello. Today I'd like to welcome a very special guest to the podcast and the Naropa University, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams-sensei. She is also a friend to the Naropa community, and it's an honor to have you speaking with us today. So welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to highlight about yourself? I know you actually wrote a book called Radical Dharma with Lama Rod Owens and Dr. Yasmin Sadula. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. That is right. How long ago was that? Uh, we wrote the book. It was published in June 2016. Okay. So its full name is Radical Dharma, mm-hmm. Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. Beautiful. Yeah. So yesterday I actually spoke to your friend Lama Rod Owens in this very same room. So it's a treat to have you here. And he had a conversation uh, Wednesday at Naropa, and he was walking into it talking about happiness. And he had this reflection moment where he wasn't feeling so happy. Mm. And so I thought it was pretty important to, like, just ask, like, how are you feeling today? Mm. To start it out like that, you know? Yeah, me? I'm, you know, I feel well. I feel uh, my life is full yeah. There's a lot of moving parts. I'm in a, a mm-hmm. transition, moving from my home that I have in com- community. I lived in community for many years, and I've lived in that home for almost 12 years. Wow. And so it just happened that the date for the move <laughs> ended up during this time that I'm here at Naropa. Yeah. And so there's a sense of my, my presence needing to be felt uh, there as well uh, yeah. so that people can ask questions and y'all know what it's like to move it's yeah. it's a thing and so <laughs> i feel in the in the presence of that somewhat rare way mm. i feel as if i'm choosing to dance between two places and yeah. so it's a slightly unusual uh, yeah. choice for me to do that and and it's great and it's it's what needs to be done yeah having a real life mm-hmm. i have a very real li- <laughs> a very real <laughs> life <laughs> yes well thanks for sharing yeah so i'd love to start off with what led you to want to study Dharma? Where did you come from? Kind of mm. like, how did you get into it? Where did you hear about it? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I really heard about it. I think I really stumbled across it when I was younger, which is great because we're here in the part of the campus that has the art exhibit. I mm-hmm. wondered about myself as a younger person that a lot of art that I saw didn't appeal to me. Mm. And you know, as we sort of develop and we want to become more complex and layered human beings, it was an inquiry of mine to wonder, like, what is this? Yeah. And there were other ways in which I found myself uh, different than <laughs> many people around me. I was yeah. uh, certainly an introvert, uh, mm-hmm. more internal. I've come to realize, actually later in life, that I was uh, much more observing of what was going around, around me than it huh. 
you know, at least people remark that like, wow, that's pretty observant for, you know, yeah. a young person. Yeah. Uh, and so I, in this sort of pursuit of wondering about my relationship to art, I at some point ran into some uh, Zen art, what we call Zen art. And so it was that word, Zen, mm. that I had in my head yeah. when I went to a bookstore and started looking and trying to find yeah. something. Yeah. But what I found was not a book on Zen art, but rather this book called Zen Mind, A Beginner's Mind. Yep. And I yeah. opened the book, and uh, I think I finished it on the floor <laughs> of the bookstore there in uh, Manhattan at the time. Wow. And it made sense to me in all mm. of the ways in which, well, not all, you know, many of the ways in which I felt myself different mm. from my own community, the aesthetic of my yeah. of my cultural trappings and background, the ways that I felt different were expressed in that book. It, something spoke to me there. Yeah. Oh, that's it so awesome. It made sense of me. Yeah, that does seem like a, a beginning book for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And it's such an easy, digestible, fun-loving, just like, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Thank you. So now that you're a teacher and you, you have like the spiritual practice, what are some of the things you face when you take on students, take on the teachings? Are there certain things that you have to navigate that you never thought <laughs> you would or certain things that teach you more now that you're a teacher mm-hmm. of the Dharma? Mm-hmm. Well, I was a residential teacher for seven years, yeah. and so that's the home that I'm leaving now. Okay. And I joke often that uh, seven years as a residential teacher is years as a residential teacher is very different than years as a week-to-week teacher where someone comes and visits your center. So I say they're like dog years. Each year is worth seven years. Mm. So really I've had 49 years of teaching experience (laughs) uh, in addition to my other years of teaching experience. And I threw myself into that particular configuration. I created that structure where Mm -hmm. we lived, worked, and practiced together. So it wasn't just that we lived together. We practiced and worked together. Yeah. And I put myself in that because I was quite interested in who we are when we're not trying to be who we say we are. Mm. And so I wanted to see students in all of the facets of their lives, not just the aspect of themselves that they decided to present to me because they thought, Mm. well, now I'm in the practice hall or the Dharma Center, and so now I'm a student and that's a teacher and then we take on all of the performances of student and teacher. And of course, that also challenged me to relate to how do I perform, what aspects of Mm. performance, you know, in this sort of idea of a Western Dharma, you know, what have I taken on as a sense of like, oh, this is quote unquote, how a teacher should show up. And so therefore, what was there for me to shed? what do I let be seen in, yeah. in, in such a, t- you know, small space? Yes. Yeah. It almost seems as though too, is what the student shows you. Mm-hmm. And now when you're in a community, there's a lot more that you get to see. You mm-hmm. get to see them through the spectrum of emotions and not oh, yeah. just how they show up. Like, That's right. Oh, I have, I'm going to go for this 30 minute sitting. I'll be back later. Right. right. Which often be- people can bury, not only a lot of the 
nuances of their lives, but a lot of the nuances of their behavior, like who they really show up as, yeah. uh, like how do you show up in relationship? And, yeah. you know, it's kind of teachers, I think, are relegated to that place as kind of like being a therapist and you rely on what people tell you. And <laughs> I think I'm just not quite as trusting as that. So I need to see for myself. Okay. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're that's who you really are. I needed to see it all. Yeah. And so I got to see it all. I got to see people mm-hmm. literally like how, what they woke up like and <laughs> how they showed up with their partners or their who they were dating or yeah. like what their relationship was to food. And, you know, wow. all of these things that I could then um, make a more comprehensive complex sense mm-hmm. of like who people were yeah. yeah and that might inform the teachings you teach these people that's right because you're around them so much and you get to that's right dance around that a little bit yeah very cool and not not easy you know for anybody thinking of like don't try this at home <laughs> because it's intense it's yeah. intense it's intense to be in the presence of a teacher anyway mm-hmm. a teacher that's committed to liberation um, yeah and it's especially t- intense to have no place to hide Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of scary. <laughs> it should be. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Taking it there's on. A, there's an aspect of it that should, right? There's an aspect of oneself that should be mm. uh, afraid of it. Yeah. There's something that makes me afraid of meeting someone who's dedicated to liberation. Mm. There's no messing around with mm-hmm. that. That's, But there's something extremely beautiful about that as well. There's this, oh my God, they took that on. Right. And that's beautiful. And right. you kind of want to, you want some of that, I right. guess. Yeah. And, and and you have to be willing to get close enough. Yeah. Yeah. The open heart. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And the fire. Yeah, there yeah. it is. You know, so I think in a lot of what we do is we talk about the open heart. And mm. we, we talk about that nice stuff. Yeah. You know, we talk about the things that are like, make us feel good. Uh-huh. You know, devotion to our teacher. <laughs> and there's like the rough and rugged stuff you yeah know? there's the ugly stuff there's yeah. the the way that you know one shows up when they don't get their way when they finally realize that they can't manipulate mm. the teacher the places which people go in which they uh their projections of their parents or their you know their family of upbringing their community of upbringing yeah. starts to come out like you know mm. so we would joke that it would take about three months <laughs> Yeah. For people to shed mm-hmm. the layer of pretense or yes. performance that would come with, it was like clockwork. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I learned that's okay. fascinating is that we, we have a rhythm, whether we mm. would like to acknowledge it or not, that human beings, there was a consistency to how long, a yeah. kind of window yeah. in which people could hold up. It was, one would say that you could not hold up a, a facade longer than a season Right, so three months is a season, and so look at that. Once you got past a season, like something falls away, just yeah. in the way that seasons do. Right, like something has oh. to turn, and so we emerge again. And in that emergence, some of the ways in which we performed ourselves have to yeah. have to drop away. We can't we can't keep them going. The connection with the earth and the biorhythms. Yeah, wow, yeah. the biorhythm of the heart. Yeah, and for years we've seen it. We're like, okay, <sighs> tick, tick, tick. <laughs> <laughs> you might be noticing something. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I was just thinking, so when when a student has this moment of the layers shedding, things unraveling, being going deeper within oneself and being mm-hmm. able to look at stuff they hid away, when they are willing to do the work, d- is there like a rapid 
transformation or is it like a like a stair step sort of exponential kind of moment of when you discover it and then you work with it really deeply it it happens and obviously you still more work to go Mm -hmm. but yeah you know, this is a per- perennial question, right? Rap, rap, uh, gradual enlightenment or sudden enlightenment is a kind of perennial question in the in the Zen world. Okay. Uh, and I think many many Buddhist traditions, this notion of like, is which one is it that happens? Mm. And I think it's both. I think yeah. that there's a mm, perception, and and I want to just lift up what you said when people are willing. Yes. But but if I could go to the sidebar for a second. Yeah, please. My single experience is the reason people don't wake up is because they're not willing. Mm. That's the single thing that gets in people's way because they're actually not willing, whether they say they are or not. They could say it and they could fervently express a wish, a desire. Yeah. But the ego hold, the, Mm. the grip... On us is quite strong and quite uh, has a lot of momentum and a lot of force. Yeah, and we're often not willing. We're not willing to do mm. the work that it takes. So the not willingness is coming from ego. Is that what you're kind of coming with and thinking about? Um, well, it's like the ego. The, so it almost seems like the ego is what's saying it wants to be free. Yes. But then when you actually confront it, then it gets really scared and it's like, ooh, maybe not. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm ready for this. Well, the ego wants an idea of being free and wants the benefits and mm. the trappings and the perception yeah. and the, like, look at me, I'm free, I'm awake, I'm enlightened, I'm, <laughs> you know, free I'm, I am. I'm woke. Uh, I'm so woke right <laughs> I'm now. I'm so woke, right? <laughs> uh, but it doesn't want to be confronted. Um, yes. And we'll, com- we'll be confronted with the things that... W- feel like that's the domain that I'm willing to be confronted. So that's what often happens is mm. people will offer up like, here are the areas that I'm willing to be confronted on. Interesting. But these, yeah. not so much. Huh. And uh, that's what living together often reveals, Oof. right? Like, <laughs> like, oh, no, no, no. I, I meant you to be a teacher of, you know, my meditation practice, but not to say anything about how I hold my relationships with... Whoa with yeah. people outside of this space, right? And so mm. if I'm being kind of shady or shabby on my romantic relationships, yeah. you know, not showing up for people or showing up in a way that's ragged, you know, what mm-hmm. do they say in LA, like <laughs> jagged, right? <laughs> then you can get, as a mm. teacher, you get pushback where people are like, oh n- yeah, like not this part. And, and huh. liberation doesn't have a partial space that it occupies it's not like okay we're going to be liberated while we're in the practice center and in public but in our private lives then Mm. we can you know be a mess and so it asks for more more of people liberation asks more of people than most of us are willing to give spirit is asking all of you Mm -hmm. for all of you and it seems as though zen has this you can't just work on one thing it's Mm -hmm. everything that you work on Mm -hmm. it's all encompassing yeah I think that's true really for all of the dharmic traditions for sure. Yeah. But I think that the collision with capitalism mm. mutes that. Yeah. And so then we have a form of presenting the dharma that is a commercialized form. It's like, mm. would you like fries with that? And if you don't want yeah. fries with that, that's okay. We can just get you this other thing, even if that's not really the thing that you need. Yeah. 
and let's yep. offer you all of the things. Let's market test and figure out mm. like what things work for you. Mm. How should I say things? <laughs> you know, okay. let's not hurt your feelings too. And <laughs> <laughs> liberation oh, doesn't man. look like that. <laughs> uh, Lama Rod was saying, Dharma isn't sexy. Mm-mm. It's not going to be sexy. It, sometimes people want this kind of prepackaged idea. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, liberation is just going to say hello. Right. And it's going to do it. It's going to do with you what it will. Whew. And <laughs> that's uniquely you on how liberation shows up for you, too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what happens at that three month part right? mm-hmm. is that people will then all of the projections come out. And so w- yeah. in whatever way that people can't hold themselves together, if they're lacking a kind of maturity to confront themselves, mm. the conversation becomes like that's other people's fault or this happened or the way this went down or the way that I'm showing up yeah. or the reason I did this or mm. you all are, you know, a cult or, you know, like everything you're becomes manipulating like, me. yeah, you're manipulating me. Everything yeah. becomes a kind of outward. And, mm. and that's always the indication that something is really shifting for people. It's not a, bad thing like we we don't shame people yeah. or anything but it's like oh okay <clears throat> something's falling apart good let's get started when the ego is getting energetically aggressive it sounds like that's when the layers are starting to crumble yeah exactly yeah yeah wonderful so in your own definition how would you define being contemplative or mindfulness <laughs> how do you see that <laughs> You know, I'm not a big fan of the word contemplative. I, I never have been. I think it's a, it has a lot of baggage for people that are, yeah, I think it's a word that we tend to call into some frame that, for me, the notion of being in relationship with myself goes beyond that. And so this notion of a kind of persistent quietude and that we don't have you know powerful voices and we don't raise our voices and we're not dynamic and we're not passionate and we're not all and so the idea Mm. of contemplative sort of puts this like you know whitewashing and I mean Mm. that in all the ways yeah this whitewashing on our the experience of our investigation of ourselves and so I think of contemplation as the investigation and we've sort of added this notion when we get to contemplative, right, uh-huh. it's like contemplation-like. And uh-huh. and so then there's we ascribe some whole sets of protocols. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Dr. Yasmin, <laughs> from, uh, my co-author, would say these protocols on what it means to be contemplative. Mm-hmm. And in a dominant culture, yeah. those protocols are actually persistently designed to bind peoples yeah. that are historically and persistently marginalized and oppressed. So yeah. those protocols are usually some form of saying you have to do it the way that we say to do it. Mm. And that's actually an inhibition to people's liberation. So some of us need to be actually come into our voice and be loud yeah. in order for us to like touch uh, the heart of liberation. And some yeah. of us need to be quiet and removed and pulled back. But the notion that there's kind of one way to do it, contemplative gets us like that. Yeah. Um, I like this. Yeah. Yeah. When you have a dominant culture mm. defining what contemplative is, you, you in- inherently dominant culture is inserting its own ideas about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, yeah. what works for their culture, mm. right? What is acceptable inside of their culture. And yeah. so 
contemplative is, is quite dangerous and loaded word mm. for me in that way. Awesome. Radical Dharma. <laughs> Radical Dharma. <laughs> uh, and, and mindfulness, you know, is, you know, I'm not, I'm not mad at, like, make mindfulness, right? Like, we're all eating burgers, right? And so, like, everybody's going to get a little taste of some yeah. meditation. And, and it's great. Whatever doorway you enter into is great. Mm-hmm. I think the conflation of mindfulness with a deathful practice that includes an, an ethic view is the problem. Yeah. Right? And so when mindfulness becomes yet another thing that we commodify mm-hmm. and we think is something that is there so that we can consume it, yeah. uh, so that it can actually, <laughs> it, then it's actually serving our ego, yeah. right? And it's serving our d- ideas of who we are and mm-hmm. who we'd like to be seen as in our performance of ourselves. Yeah. And so in that way, and which like anything, you know, it can become a factor of our incarceration rather than our mm. liberation. I've I've come across moments where mindfulness has gotten the way of actually being mindful, <laughs> and I I call those situations of of energetically bullying the space. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so absolutely, yeah. Thank you for great. sharing. Yeah. <laughs> so during some teachings, we hear this word "doing the work" quotations. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious, and doing the work can show up as meditation practices, engaging in your community, and I'm curious, how do you do the work? Mm-hmm. How do you show up doing the work and how you're saying you live in a sangha or a community and it sounds like you are never not around doing the work. It's always work. <laughs> well, I don't live in one anymore, which is so <laughs> it's different now. Yeah. For me, doing the work is listening first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And that's both an internal listening and an external listening. And I would say external first to know to have a sense of you know, and a willingness to be open and to what is happening in the room, what's showing up, who's showing up, what's the vibration, what's the energy. Yeah. Are people in feeling aggressive, right? Is there a corner in the room where there's a lot of stuckness? And then how is that landing in and on me, right? And as a teacher in particular, noticing places in which anything might feel like it's sticky so that I'm not operating out of that place, right? Like, oh, if that, something, you know, kind of sticking for me, yeah, right? Like, clear that, Mm. right, before I kind of barrel in and have something to say because then I'd be operating out of something that's got a trigger or a hook for Mm -hmm. me. Uh, So for me, doing the work is is first and foremost, it's listening. And then there are these forms in which we do the work, right? Like whether that's meditation or held in community. You know, those are just the the how. But Mm -hmm. at its essence, for me, doing the work means to be in attunement with the reality as it is. Yeah. Right? The the reality that I'm experiencing and the dance between the reality that I experience and the reality Mm -hmm. that I project and the reality that I'm consistently recreating by my perceptions and really working pretty consistently and persistently at recognizing like, oh no, that's, I think I see that, but that's not what I see. That's what I've been told. Oh, I think that that's what I heard or that's the energy that that person is coming at Mm -hmm. me with. But actually that's something that I inherited to, in terms of my understanding about how those kinds of people behave or do things or what yeah. that behavior means. And so this kind of peeling away of the layers of assumption yeah. is doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. But Ooh. you've got to be willing to listen. 
lots of work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really, I really enjoy the, the beginning of that, of just, just listening, stop and listen. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us, we listen to react. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, and then what you're doing is you're internalizing it. And then, and then you're asking questions internally of like, how is that landing for me? Is this, is something happening? And then you externally show up. Mm-hmm. So you're being extremely skillful. There's something about that. <laughs> I wish we could all be doing at this moment. <laughs> Which, and it doesn't always mean, you know, it sounds nice. Yeah, it's not all like right? flowers and right. cupcakes. Right. Yeah. It's like sometimes it's, it's, it could be wrathful, skillful rage. That's right. How does Zen practice show up in the love, justice, and race work that you work with? And how do you channel those teachings? Mm, You know, I'm not committed to, and I've said this often, so those of you that are saying, I've heard her say that before, it's true. I'm not committed to nation building around Buddhism or Zen. And so I'm never thinking like, how do I offer them a Zen teaching? Mm. in order to <laughs> make yeah. this point or to get something across. Yeah. I could give a hoot about Zen teaching or, <laughs> or Buddhism for that matter. Yeah. You know, you get in the boat, you cross the shore, you leave the boat at the shore, you don't carry it around on your mm-hmm. back. And so yeah. I don't think of myself as trying to reach for uh, teachings, you know, as if they're this packaged thing. Like, yeah. oh, I have some M&Ms and, or it's a cough <laughs> drop, you know. Mm-hmm. And here's the teaching that you need, but rather to allow the teachings that I have integrated into my own being mm. to come through me and to be in active relationship with my study, you know, and yeah. my continuous understanding. And so I may share something that I have the echo in my mind as it comes through of like, oh, that's from the Yoga Sutras, mm-hmm. uh, or the echo in my mind of, you know, that is very consistent with the song of the identity of relative and absolute, right? And and so that it may come from somewhere that resonates f- with me yeah. as something that has been part of my own teaching life, where that's very much something that's related to the Heart Sutra. Yeah. It's a afterthought, right? It sort of comes afterwards. I'm like, oh yeah, that's just like the that's just like in the Heart Sutra, right? Yeah. I, I try to just live and teach out of my experience. Yeah. And out of my listening uh, and out of my seeing, you know, mm. to see people and to do my best to get out of the way of seeing people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, it sounds like there's so much interdisciplinary studying going on. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think if we don't have interdisciplinary study, then we get very uh, static mm. about the teachings. It's almost like we can't save anything else and we can't draw from anyone else. I had a Twitter exchange with someone today mm-hmm. and I think it was because Against the Stream made a you know, a tweet about uh there's a profile of me um from Lions Roar and it's on the mm-hmm. it's going around the web or, you know, wherever that is. You know, as Ram Lama Rod said, I'm like I'm Buddhist famous, right? Which is like <laughs> quote unquote <Quotation. laughs> quote unquote, right? Yeah. Uh, and so they put out this quote and and someone responded I'm sure the Buddha would be a huge proponent of identity politics in the teachings, something to that effect. Okay. And I responded, because, you know, it was included my, my little at, <laughs> at thing, my name, and yeah. I responded and I said, it's implicit that he was, because he built a monastic, he built an institution that decasted, right, mm. declassed and yeah. de-raced yeah. the teachings and the, the ability to receive the teachings. Mm-hmm. 
and the person didn't quite get that I was saying that. Okay. Know? And they said something like, you know, well, can you prove it? You know, can you, I mean, can you tell me the, we, your source? And I said, that's not my work to do. Yeah. Right? And, <laughs> and so then the person had, like, energy around it, mm. right? Like, oh, as a spiritual teacher, you know, I've asked you something. And what they were saying is, like, hmm. this has to be, there has to be some source that I can go and look at and pick up and touch. And I'm like, but it was implicit. It's implicit yeah. in the fact that he, not only in, is it in his teachings, it was in his teachings, his practice, and his instruction yeah. that he developed. Now, he didn't have to then write that down and say, look, we should all have access to practice mm -hmm. that goes beyond our class, our caste, our color. Yeah. He built an institution that Im implied that. Yep. But this sort of fixation of the teachings means that if we can't right. find it written out and spelled out for us in these words, mm -hmm. that yes, in fact, the Buddha, I am a proponent of identity politics, <laughs> then yeah. somehow we, we don't, it's outside of the teachings. Huh. And so I encourage people to not get caught up in this notion of the teachings in this way that binds us and doesn't allow us to be in the full and vibrant reality of the life that we are living. Yes. And that the Buddha didn't have any set of teachings that was anything other than the life that he lived and what he saw and expressed. Mm -hmm. And so there's not some sort of like magic book that he found and then it has the teachings, but yeah. rather he expressed his life. And then hundreds of years later, mm. some people wrote down what they chose to express of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So can we live from the teachings of our experience? The most unique teachings we can have. Mm -hmm. Wow. So... What is your relationship with Shambhala and like Trungpa Rinpoche? Has that influenced you in your <laughs> path and your spirituality and your and any of that? Yeah, sure. So at not too long after finding that Zen mind, beginner's mind book and setting about on my path of like I'm gonna figure how to do this Zen thing. Yeah. Um I went across the country. I came to California. I lived in New York at the time. I came to California. I went to mm. San Francisco Zen Center. I went home with a Zafu meditation cushion <laughs> tucked under my arm. Yeah. It's kind of on my path now to being a meditator or mm -hmm. whatever that is. I eventually found a Sangha to be able to, a community of people that practice, to be able to, to practice with. And, you know, as we all do, we, like I started to read. Mm -hmm. And I ran across uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings. And uh, the first book, which is a great way to start, is uh, was Spiritual Materialism. Yeah. There was such a cutting through of the bullshit that yep. was present in his teaching. I became very interested. So I feel like mm. my formal practice was in Zen, this particular Zen community. And I went to New York Shambhala at the time, mm -hmm. And I'll just say, at the time, it was like frighteningly white and frighteningly yeah. tight. Yeah. And this was some years after Trungpa Rinpoche died. And so there was a, a feeling of chaos there, mm -hmm. a, like in a, in a heaviness and a grief and also kind of a suspicion. Uh, hmm. Some of it had to do with just my lack of understanding of, you know, for instance, the kasong and mm -hmm. the, the military dress. And yeah. 
uh, <laughs> my lack of understanding of the way that the culture worked, but also not being a welcoming environment that mm. would recognize that a young woman of color coming in would not understand what yeah. she was seeing. And so there was no intention or, dis- you know, forthcomingness to explain yeah. and say, oh, this is what you're seeing here. Yeah. And much to my heartbreak, I couldn't actually find myself in that community, mm. but I stayed with the teachings. And so yeah. I feel like I grew up totally immersed in Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings, mm-hmm. coinciding when, you know, living side by side with my own formal Zen practice. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I've, and I've said all, often, you know, that <laughs> the Zen is what I married, but, uh, yeah. you know, Shambhala has been my lover. And <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's so cool. I, I love it too. Oh my gosh. And I believe in certain types of emanations of things existing in the world. And mm-hmm. so for me, Naropa is, it, it needs to exist. It needs to to be there as a model of something that gives us a, an inspiration for something that's possible that defies something of our culture. I mean, there's ways in which it's an institution yeah. and it has all of those trappings, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, it has its problems and challenges and mm-hmm. all of the things. But the <laughs> notion that there's a Buddhist-inspired university mm-hmm. that people are starting a session of a podcast with a bow or an, a big <laughs> event with a bow to bow in, yeah. uh, that there's real investigation in that way. Mm. It harkens to something that's possible. And even for those of us that don't have the opportunity to study here, and you know, which it did for me at the time, many years ago, there was a point at which I thought about coming to study here. Yeah. And, and I couldn't quite make sense of it coming coming yeah. from the big city and and sticking myself into the this bowl of mountains was was a challenge for me yeah but i but i have c- continued to feel inspired by the mm. by the reality of it that it exists and so there's a way yeah. in which the shambhala ideal shambhala principle mm-hmm. continues to live in my heart and yeah. in my view and so i think that 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 has very much informed me. And Shambhala is now your lover. Yeah, and Shambhala is is my lover. And Zen is who you are with. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I'm somewhat, uh, you know, I'm somewhat poly and like not with anybody really okay. right now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Just spiritually open. I'm spiritually poly. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. Yeah. I can get down with that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Mm-hmm. It was such a pleasure to have you and an honor, and we're just happy to have you in the Naropa community. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yes. So I'd like to thank Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams Sensei today for speaking with us, and have a beautiful day. Thank you. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.